0: Well, Merry Christmas, everyone. Usually, a Christmas sermon is preached on one of the typical usual stories from one of the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John even, or perhaps from an Old Testament passage like the prophet Isaiah chapter seven or chapter nine, all familiar passages. But today we venture outside of the typical and I think we'll be rewarded immensely. Our text comes from Paul's letter to the churches in the area of Galatia. It's a New Testament book that we simply call Galatians. And in our passage, we see the greatest gift of all at Christmas. What is that gift? Well, you may be surprised. Let's read Galatians chapter four, verses four through seven. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son This is the word of God, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If we wanna know God, if we wanna know his will, if we wanna know his way, then we must know his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word given to us this morning. It really does give us hope in this dark world. It it reminds us of your tender, compassionate care that you have called us from darkness into light, that you've made us children. We've been adopted by God Almighty. This truth is often so hard for us to grasp, but may we delight in that today. May the same spirit that, that was in Jesus that cried out, Abba Father, be in us as we cry out to you this morning anew, we pray. Amen. You know, for some reason, there is an awful lot of gift comparison that goes on around Christmas time. My brother and I, we used, to, we used to rip the wrapping paper off the presents, and, and we would look first at the gift in our hands, and then what would we do? We would look to the other to see what they got, right? You've done this, haven't you? And we always knew we were getting the same thing when Mom would hand each of us a present, and she would say what? Open this at the same time. That was code word for Grandma Got You Both a new set of matching PJs. And every year, you and I, we look at the gifts that we receive, and we can order these gifts from from favorite all the way down to regiftable. I've told you about the time when Leslie's sister, Jen, gave me one of those battery-powered nose hair trimmers, and I was like, what the heck? I don't have any problem with nose hairs, run wild. So I threw it away. I think you know where this is going. A few years back, I went out and bought another one. (laughs) Turns out I needed that gift after all. It it came about the same time I got that AARP card in the mail. Yes, I'm 54. As you think about the best presents you have received over the years, it should be obvious that none compare to God's giving this world his only son. That is what Christmas is about. Jesus Christ is God's gift to the world. Now for me, I did not receive and open that gift until I was 29 years old. I always kind of liked Jesus, but I did not think I needed him Maybe that describes you today. You like Jesus the man, but you do not think you need him, especially if that means admitting that you're a sinner in need of a savior. But everybody needs Jesus. And it's of utmost importance to open this gift of forgiveness before it's too late. Perhaps this Christmas you will do just that. For most of us, for most of us, we have opened the gift and we enjoy it. In fact, with Christ in our lives, there are so many varied gifts and blessings we receive, right, like forgiveness of sin, illumination of God's word, the presence of his Holy Spirit in our lives, connection to the body of Christ, answered prayer, the certain hope of of enjoying God face to face one day, the list goes on and on. Now, if you were to rank All of the varied blessings of this gift of Jesus Christ, there is one that rises to the top. What is it? We see it in our passage this morning. I don't think I'm at all alone when I say that the greatest of all blessings bestowed by God, other than Himself, is the right and privilege to become His adopted children the apostle john in that letter we've been studying first john we're going to cover we're going to look into this passage in a few weeks john says something about this i'm going to try to read his words with what i'm sure was the joy and enthusiasm in which he wrote them because i doubt he i doubt he wrote i doubt he wrote it with this sense of see what kind of love the father has given to us no i think he wrote it with See, see what kind of love the Father has for us? That we should be called children of God? And so we are. I wish to propose you that the great purpose of Christmas is not simply forgiveness of sin or redemption, as great as those realities are. What we will see in our passage is that redemption is God's means to a far greater end. God redeems sinners with this beautiful goal in mind to make us his sons and daughters. Paul writes in verse 5 that we are redeemed so that we might receive adoption as sons. And so as you prepare to celebrate Christmas with the giving and receiving of material and earthly gifts, do not let this day pass without devoting your heart and mind to meditation on the greatest gift of all. Through faith in Jesus Christ, God has made you his son or daughter, and therefore an heir of all things glorious for all eternity. As we look at this amazing truth, we're gonna do it under two headings. First, we're gonna look at the facts that form God's family. And second, we're gonna look at the fortune of being in God's family. First, the facts that form God's family. We see these in verses four and five. And what we see are six facts. I'm gonna run through them really quickly. Trust me, it'll go fast. First is the timing of his coming. We read that Jesus was born when? When the fullness of time had come. Picture yourself pouring a, out of a pitcher, uh, pouring water into a nice glass, and you're trying to fill it all the way up to the top, and you know that feeling of when you fill it up and it's like, oh my gosh, it overflows onto the countertop? That is the meaning that the Greek word we've translated here, fullness, is trying to convey a fullness, an overflowing. Jesus came 2,000 years ago because it was the fullness of time. How so? Two ways. First, fullness because God had prepared his people. They were fully prepared by then. Ever since Adam turned from God in the garden, God had promised to send a son born of the woman to crush the head of Satan and reverse the curse. And God had gathered to himself a people that he pledged his covenant love towards, saying, I will be your God and you will be my people. And yet, as we know, the nation of Israel, the people of God, failed to love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And at the time of Jesus' birth, the temple, which was what? It was supposed to be a house of prayer. It was supposed to be a place of cleansing for the sins of God's people. And it was turned into a money laundering scheme. The fullness of time had come to God's people. And also the fullness of time had come to the known world. Those of you who have studied Roman history will know these facts. The Roman Empire, by the time of Jesus' birth, had brought what was called the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, in which the whole known world was united as never known before. And the Romans had constructed these amazing road systems with five main highways stretching out in all directions to the end of the known world. And then there was a common language to bind them all together throughout the entire empire. This made it very easy for people to communicate. The time was full for the gospel to be proclaimed throughout the world. Jesus knew this for himself. In the very beginning of Mark's gospel, we read these words Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, What? The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So the first fact is the fact of fullness. The second fact is the fact of origin, the origin of Christ's coming. Verse 4, we read, God sent forth his son. This testifies to Jesus's eternal deity. The fact that God sent his son means that he existed before he was born in Bethlehem. Think about that just because it astounds our minds does not make it untrue. God is a trinity, three persons in one Godhead. The trinity has always existed. In fact, the trinity created time in which we experience. And so the point here is that Jesus is God. He is God the Son, fully equal to God in glory and power and might. His sonship is eternal When the time was right, the eternal divine Son came down from heaven into the world. As the Apostle John wrote, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Which leads to our third fact the manner of his coming. Paul writes that Jesus was born of a woman. Whereas sent implies his eternal deity, born declares his true humanity born of a woman tells us three things. One, Jesus is fully God and fully human. Both are essential. Listen, the cross would have no power and therefore give us no hope if what hung on it were God as a ghost or or if it was a decent man, but not divine. Either way, my friends, we are doomed, but the eternal son of God was born of a woman. But there's more to being born of a woman. At the time of Jesus's birth, it was customary to give a genealogy of a person as being born of a man. So genealogies listed males. But Paul writes the opposite, does he not? Jesus was born of a woman who was indeed a virgin, as foretold by the prophet Isaiah. The child was born without a man, born of a woman, the true Son of God, the Father. And yet there's still more to this phrase, born of a woman. Jesus wasn't just formed in her, he was formed of her. That is, born in human weakness, like you and me. Born in low estate. Great humiliation. Think about it. Mary, Mary was a teenage girl, a young woman. She had not even been married to Joseph. Her child, the savior of the world, was born in occupied territory, controlled by a foreign despot to a couple who had been misplaced by a census and they were far away in some backwater town where they didn't have any close friends or support system in Bethlehem, which was overcrowded with other families that were there present for the census taking. No adequate housing, so a stable became a maternity ward for the Son of God. That was the manner of Jesus' coming. He was, he was born of a woman. Fourth is the condition of Christ's coming. Christ's condition of coming was that of perfect obedience. Verse 4 ends with Jesus being born under the law. First, remember this, my friends. The law of God is good. Do not ever think otherwise. The reason why God had to give us commandments is because we, by nature, are not good. We need instruction. We need correction. We need laws. And think this through. If all the people of the world follow God's commands, then then this world would be spectacular. But that is not the case. As scripture says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In fact, no human being who has ever lived has done well at pleasing God, except, of course, for Jesus. That is why he was sent to perfectly live out the law in our place. Jesus kept the whole law, all of God's good commands, every day of his life, perfectly. Jesus lived under the law, and listen, Jesus died under the law. For God's Son coming under the law included accepting the death penalty his people deserve for breaking the law. Paul speaks of this earlier in this book of Galatians when he writes, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, and then he quotes the Old Testament, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. The reason why so many Jewish people in Jesus' day and it's true to this very day, did not believe in Jesus, that he was the Messiah, it was because he hung on a tree. A cross is a tree. They believed the Messiah could never be a cursed one. But my friends, that's the whole point. The Messiah had to be a curse in our place so that he could take the curse that we deserve. And this leads us to the fact that forms the family of God. Redemption. Verse 5, you read, born under the law to redeem those who are under the law. In the ancient world, redemption most often referred to the, re- the release of slaves by the payment of a price. Now remember this slavery in Paul's day was much different than slavery that was experienced in America. I'm not saying it was good, only that it was different. Back then, there was no blue collar workforce. Many young men and women willingly became bondservants or slaves. And yet many of them would eventually over time be able to buy their own freedom later in life. To purchase someone out of slavery is is to redeem them. And so Paul has in mind the act of God rescuing and releasing and delivering from slavery at the payment of a price. We've seen this before in the Old Testament when God delivered his his people out of slavery in Egypt, right? What was the price? The price was the life of the firstborn son of every household in the land. But since God gave his own people what? The Passover lambs to sacrifice and put the blood over their doorways? He gave them the sacrificial lambs as a substitute for their firstborn males. And so the curse did not land on the male Israelites. Listen, in a similar yet more profound way, God redeems with the price of his firstborn son, whose blood covers all who believe. Now the slavery that Paul is speaking of, of course, is spiritual slavery. Slavery to sin and the elementary principles of this fallen world. When redemption from spiritual slavery takes place, one is legally and permanently set free. Free to what? Run away from God? No, to enter into his presence, to know him, to stand in God's holy presence very clean and and with a perfect record that is given to you not by your own record, but by Jesus' own record for you. We need to understand this point. Until Christ sets you free, You are a slave to sin, and you're incapable of coming before God. You wouldn't even want to, for one, and even if you wanted to, you couldn't. And instead, you're destined for eternal anguish, eternal anguish, apart from God's presence. But but when Christ is your Redeemer, you are legally set free, and your sinful past is gone. (laughs) Redemption. What a gift. But there is a better gift, a better blessing that comes through Christmas. We see it in the sixth fact, our adoption. The sixth fact is that God sent his son to adopt you as his son or daughter. As great a gift as redemption is, it's not God's ultimate goal. His ultimate goal is attached to to the purpose clause in verse 5. You guys know what purpose clauses are, right? You've studied grammar. There is a so that in verse 5. And this so that does something for us. It reveals God's purpose for our redemption. Why did God send his son to redeem us? Verse 5, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Picture the scene in a courtroom where there's an orphaned young man on trial, and then picture where the, where the judge silences the courtroom and issues a verdict, not guilty. That is the picture of redemption being set free, having a clean record. But what if the judge takes off his robe and steps down from his bench and declares, and young man, I adopt you as my own. From this day forward, you will be my son. That is what God does for us in the sending of his son. His goal for you, Christian, isn't just to set you free from your sinful past, but to adopt you as his very own child. My friends, this isn't make-believe. Follow the facts. The facts are at the fullness of time, God in heaven sent forth his son to be born truly human so that he would live the life that you and I should have lived and that he would die the death that you and I deserve to die in order to buy us out of spiritual slavery with the ultimate goal of making us his very own dearly cherished children. That is where the facts lead us. Now, problem is, I don't think it's just my problem. I think it's all of us as Christians. We can operate as if we are hopeless orphans rather than cherished children. So let's conclude by meditating on how fortunate we are, not just to be redeemed, but adopted into God's family. Let's look at the fortune. There is no greater fortune than to belong to God's family. God is our Father in heaven. Now, when, I, when we talk about God being a father, we need to address the reality that some people have had amazing fathers, like perfect, like would never change a thing father, um, while some have had a father perhaps they never even knew or perhaps was mean or abusive. I think most of us fall somewhere in between. As I look at my own kids, I know that I've fallen short in so many ways There's too many times I've had to say, I'm sorry. But what I hope my daughters understand is that God is their perfect heavenly father who never has a harsh word. He never over-disciplines. Or finds himself too preoccupied. I hope they understand that and cherish that. with that out of the way. (laughs) I want us to focus on two fortunes that we share as children of God. The first is access, and the second is status. The Apostle Paul wants us to understand that we have access to a dad in heaven who perfectly loves and cares for us. We see it in verse 6. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Now, where did Paul get this saying, Abba, Father? Well, it was from Jesus' own prayers. Remember when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, that was on the night he was about to be betrayed, and, and here's what we, we read that, that that he said. He said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus cried out, Abba, Father, asking God if there was any other way that, that he could save the world other than him dying on the cross. Could we just maybe do that, Dad? Abba is Aramaic. It's the Aramaic word for daddy. It connotes... Intimacy. Just as Jesus shared, had intimate access to God the Father, so too all of us who trust in Christ. Here's the truth we need to press into our lives as Christians. Your Heavenly Father, listen, he loves you with the same, exact same love that he has for his eternal, only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. The same love, not the slightest bit less. That seems too far-fetched, but it's true. Think about that for the rest of the week, better yet, for the rest of your life. Meditate upon how fortunate we are to belong to God's family. We are fortunate to be adopted as God's cherished children because now we have access to God as our dad in heaven. We can cry out in the same spirit that dwells in in Jesus, dwelled in Jesus Christ when he was on earth. We can cry out, Abba, Father, and he hears our prayers. Also, we're fortunate because of the status we share as God's cherished children. Our status is is that we are now children with the full rights as heirs. We are not overlooked Orphans, but cherished children. We see this in the last verse in our passage where we read, You are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Adoption was common in ancient Rome. In order to have a desirable heir to their estate, aging, childless couples would adopt a worthy adult male, and that man would become their heir. Roman law ensured that adopted children were legally equal to natural-born children, equal in every regard. Paul is saying something amazing. He says we receive adoption as sons. He's writing to men and women. We are adopted as firstborn sons. In the ancient world, the eldest son was the primary heir. All or most of the father's inheritance went to the son who was firstborn. I'm not saying that's right. I'm a second child. Um, But that's just how it was. Now, parse what this means for us. It matters not whether you're male or female. All who trust in Christ are given the status of firstborn son. We have a theological term for this truth. We call it sonship. All Christians have been given the right of sonship, firstborn son status, whether you're male or female. This is amazing, right? Now think this through too. Really, when you think about it, whose firstborn status is this? Whose is it that we are given? It's Jesus's status. Jesus is the firstborn son with all the rights to inherit all of God's kingdom. And yet we, for some reason, we who belong to Christ, share in all of Christ's inheritance. The apostle Peter wrote of the inheritance God has for his children in 1 Peter chapter 1. We read there, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, According to what? His great mercy. He has caused us to be born again. To a living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. From the dead. To an inheritance. What kind of inheritance? That is imperishable. Undefiled and unfading. Kept in heaven. For you. So. How fortunate are we to be saved by grace into God's family? We are loved by God, listen, as equally as God loves his eternal son, Jesus, our Lord. And we share in Christ's inheritance equally as if we are the only begotten son of God, Jesus, our Lord. Do you now see why of all the blessed gifts God gives us in Christ that adoption is by far the greatest gift? And adoption really is a gift. How do we know? In our text, Paul says our adoption is to be what? Received like a gift. Verse 5 ends how? It says, so that we might receive adoption like a gift. A gift you open. And receive. This Christmas, will you receive and rest upon God's gift of adoption? Of all the gifts you could ever receive, will you treasure your gift of adoption above all others? As we prepare to come and receive the Lord's Supper, let us see what kind of love the Father has lavished upon us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Merry Christmas. Let's pray. Father, it seems too good to be true, and yet we followed the facts. The facts aren't words we've created. The facts are written down in your holy word, and so as we follow the facts, we come to see that you've redeemed us, not so that we can be distant, but so that we can be drawn near to you as children. We thank you for this for this amazing gift. We thank you that male and female, we are all firstborn sons in your sight, heirs of the glory that really only belongs to your son and yet it's ours. What a beautiful reality to behold. May this change us, may it give us hope in the midst of this dark world. May we have great delight as your people, we pray, amen.